0: So uh, something happened last Sunday night at the Academy Awards. Y'all probably didn't, didn't hear about it, but uh, at the Oscars, the host of the Oscars, you know, t- they tell jokes. That's what, they, that's what the host does. And typically they tell jokes at the expense of the celebrities who are there present. Well, one joke apparently was not very well received. One of the celebrities walked up on stage and slapped the host hard right across his face. And, uh, you know, if you were watching it, I, I, didn't, I wasn't watching it live. I just saw it on Twitter initially. But um, if you were watching it live, you probably initially thought, well, this is scripted. This is part of the joke, right? Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't. And, of course, you know, the, the celebrity has come out and apologized and resigned and all sorts of, you know, all this kind of stuff that happens when things like this uh, go down. And, and you know, the, the news cycle will move on like it always does. But it's been a pretty big deal over the course of the last week. But it really got me to thinking, um, how I would respond if somebody punked me like that. I mean, if, if up here preaching, if, if I'm preaching and one of y'all gets sideways with me and just comes up and slaps me in the face, what would I do? Now, y'all are nice. You'd, you'd at least wait till afterward catch me in the parking lot, okay? I'm sure if you, if you really uh, felt that way about me, okay? But now, and, and I mean this, or what if it, not, at, not even at church, what if it happened out on the Little League field or, or out at Kroger while I was in the frozen foods or something? And it's really not, you know, I'm, my guess is, certainly not, I mean, I haven't been, it's been a while since I've been slapped in the face. Uh, certainly not in public. I mean, if you've been slapped in the face in public recently, then you maybe know how it feels. But for most of us, it's, it's really a bigger question than, than the slap itself. The question is, how do I respond? How do you respond when you're done wrong? When somebody does you wrong or you feel like you've been done wrong, what's your natural reaction? And so if maybe if we broaden the question to say this, okay, how do you respond when you're lied to or when you're gossiped about, uh, when you're falsely accused or manipulated, when you're when you're elbowed out of a group or decision, when, 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 uh, when we get demoted or when we've been stolen from or even just cut off in traffic. How do we tend to respond when we've done wrong? Now some people just fly into a vengeful rage, especially in traffic maybe. It's just, you know, we just can't control our response. We just lose all sense of ourselves. But that's not most of us. Most of us, when we're done wrong, we just hold on to it. We stew over it. We become bitter and resentful. And y'all, depending on the wrong done, depending on the person who does it, maybe it's a person that you care about or that that you love, uh, the closer they are to you, typically the more it hurts. And y'all, if you're done wrong, there's a decent chance if you're like me, you'll stew over it forever. It just never goes away. It's something we hold on to because that's our nature. Our nature is we're just not at our best when we've been harmed, when we've been slighted, when we've been hurt. And this is part of, what, part of what makes the crucifixion of Jesus so absolutely stunning to us. It's not just the event itself that Jesus was nailed to a cross. But we have to consider the fact that on the cross, Jesus was facing the ultimate wrong. The, the, the absolute most egregious injustice of all time was being perpetrated against God's perfect son. He had been wrongly uh, accused, wrongly condemned. He's now being tortured and being killed. He's suffering the worst injustice there ever was. And yet what we see in Jesus, even as he as he uh, is nailed to the cross, what we see in Jesus, what most naturally flows out of his heart, it just takes our breath away. The kind of person Jesus shows himself to be, even in his darkest hour. Y'all, y'all we've, we've studied this now in in several uh, uh, recent weeks. We've looked at Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial under Annas and then Caiaphas and then Pontius Pilate, and now we're watching him be crucified. And y'all, one of the things that we've tried to say consistently through all of this is that when men were at their absolute worst, God was at his best. Uh, as these men, we see them committing this ultimate sin, God is actually achieving his ultimate good, which is, of course, our ultimate good. It's the salvation of the world. It's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we look together at this portion of John chapter 19 this morning, uh, two major ideas I want us to take note of and reflect on together. Two things we see come out of this scripture. First, we see God's justice in the face of man's injustice. And then we also see God's mercy in the face of man's cruelty. All right, We're going to see shining through this scripture God's justice and God's mercy, even in such darkness that we witness on the cross. So y'all, we left off in verse 16 um, where Pontius Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. After a lot of back and forth on trial, Pilate finally... um, caves to the will of the, the Jewish leaders in the crowd and hands Jesus over to die. And so um, look with me at verse 17 as we begin this morning. John nineteen seventeen. It says, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Um, Now, John John states this very matter-of-factly. He doesn't really give us much detail as some of the other gospel accounts do. But I, I want us to be clear on what's happening here. And I'll be brief on this, but I want us to be clear. The Romans designed crucifixion to be the ultimate form of torture and capital punishment. Uh, It was torture for the criminal, of course. But it was also something that was horrifying to witness. Which is why they did it in public. They didn't do secret crucifixions. It was always done in open air. In this case, right on the outside of the city of Jerusalem. Because the goal was to bring the the maximum amount of shame to the criminal. That everybody can walk by and see him suffering. Suffering. And it was also uh, the ultimate example for everyone else. You break our law, and this is what happens. This was a way for them to keep crime at a minimum, because now criminals see what will become of them if they break the law. This is how the Romans kept order. But it wasn't just order. It wasn't just justice in their eyes. It was torture. It was an example being set And so y'all, this is the harsh truth of it. This is true for Jesus as it was for anybody else. Uh, They would crucify men naked. They would nail their hands and their feet to the cross. Um, But they wouldn't support the body with the nails. They would support the body underneath the feet. That way you wouldn't die too quickly. It was designed to be very slow and very agonizing. Um, They didn't want you to die fast. They wanted everybody to see you slowly bleed out. Um, also on the cross, they would nail a marker. And that that marker had written on it the crime that the person had committed. And so again, setting an example for the passers-by, they see what happens now to thieves or murderers or whoever it may be. But y'all, something very peculiar is done in Jesus' case. The inscription that is nailed to the cross with Jesus was entirely unique to him. Nothing like it had ever been written before. We see that in verse 19. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, y'all, if we we recall what's happened in the the previous verses in in the last chapter, Pilate never could find any guilt in Jesus. He never found a reason to condemn him to the cross. And so in this case, to hammer the accusation on the cross, they didn't really have a crime to report, to record. And so instead, Pilate writes, The accusation against him was not an accusation at all, but a declaration. And, of course, this brings great shame to the religious leaders. They don't like this idea that people would come by and see a proclamation, the king of the Jews. No, no, write down that that's what he claimed to be so that everyone can see, of course, that he's a false messiah. But Pilate says, no, I've written what I've written. And, y'all, this is not Pilate making a confession of faith. This is Pilate rubbing their faces in it. The crowd refused to accept Pilate's judgment of innocence. The verdict was, was not uh, acceptable to them, so they kept pushing, they kept forcing Pilate's hand until eventually he hands him over. And so this is Pilate's one final dig at the Jewish leaders. Just like we saw last week, he kept saying to them, "'Behold your king, shall I crucify your king?' Knowing full well that they hated Jesus." from the bottom of their hearts. Well, now he puts it up for everybody to see as one last way of shaming not only Jesus, but his kinsmen. Now, y'all, I mentioned this a moment ago, our first big idea from this passage, which is God's justice in the face of this great injustice. But it's not apparent right away. I mean, the the, the injustice side is very obvious. I mean, we're just, we're reading about it. It's unfolding right before us. But if we ask the question, okay, well, then where is God's justice to counteract it? Where is God's justice to balance the scales? Wouldn't it have been just, especially at this point, when everything is falling apart, for God to step in miraculously, to smite the bad guys, to put them down, and to bring his son down from the cross alive and well? I mean, that would have been vindicating for Jesus. Everything he said, everything that he claimed to be, would have been shown gloriously true in that moment. Wouldn't that have been just for God to do? But of course, that's not what happens. Jesus stays on the cross. He suffers there. Soon he's going to die. And so if I bring up this issue of God's justice, we may say, wait a minute. There's no justice taking place here. But we'd be wrong. And with the eyes of faith, we're able to see it, I hope. The justice of God is happening right here on the cross, right before our eyes. And to show us that, I want to point us to one of the great paragraphs in all the Bible, something that would be wise for us to, uh, to memorize, to take, heart, to take to heart. It's from Romans chapter 3. What, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, he, he gives us the estimation of our own need, and then he tells us how God meets that need. I want you to see what Paul says in Romans 3. For all have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. Being justly punished according to what we deserve. Now stop for a second. I underlined the part that I made up. Can you put that back on the screen for a second? Normally I don't make stuff up from the pulpit. That's kind of, that can be kind of dangerous. But in this case, I did it. Forgive me. We all sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And so what's, what's God going to do about that? Well, he's going to hold us accountable. He's going to judge us for our sins, right? That's the only thing that makes sense if God is just. But that's not what this scripture says. Praise God. And and I'll invite us now to look at the correct scripture, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's, we could spend weeks on that paragraph instead of minutes, but let's, just, let's think about what Paul's just told us. Rather than being justly punished for our sins, we may be justified as a gift of grace, which means justified. That means God declares you righteous. God proclaims you to be blameless, sinless, through the redemption which is in Christ. Now, how is that possible? How can sinners be proclaimed, declared, blameless, sinless? Verse 25 tells us, Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, that's the cross. A public display for all to see. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he's not simply a convicted criminal dying for some unknown or undiscovered sin, or simply the sin of being in the wrong place or the wrong time. No, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the Scripture tells us he is serving as our atoning sacrifice, our propitiation, which means All of God's righteous wrath towards sin is being satisfied right here on the cross. Sin is being punished. Sin is being paid for, not by those who committed it, but by Jesus, who is taking it upon himself. And so the cross, Paul says, is the the ultimate demonstration of God's righteousness so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Y'all, this is such a necessary question for us to deal with and to have an answer for. How in the world can God punish my sins without destroying me in the process? How can God truly, justly hold me accountable for all my wrongs without me dying under His righteous hand? And the answer is the cross. On the cross, God is demonstrating His righteousness. Sin is being punished. As Jesus bears our sins in His body on our behalf. And because God's justice is being perfectly satisfied right here, God may now be the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Because our sin has been paid for, because Jesus has taken it away upon Himself, He has now gifted to us His own righteousness. So that you and I, by God's mercy, our sin is dealt with, it's been nailed to the cross. And now God may actually look upon those who have faith in Christ and say, justified, righteous. The old reformers called this an alien righteousness. Because when God looks upon you and me, if we have faith in Christ, God does not see us on our own merits. He doesn't see our church attendance. He doesn't see our financial giving. He doesn't see the 5K you walked for heart disease. None of the things you think might be to your credit are actually to your credit in the eyes of God. You cannot be accepted based on what you've done. Just as we said earlier, you can't be denied on the basis of all the things you haven't done or that you've done wrong. God accepts us. He justifies you because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to you as a free gift. We are justified by grace. You have sinned and fallen short of his glory. We can accept that and we can actually celebrate that. Because the verse doesn't end there. We are justified as a gift of grace. Y'all, we've made this point now several times. I'm going to repeat it again. I I just think it's worth repeating. The injustice of man at the cross is serving the true divine justice of God. The two are not opposed to one another. It's through the injustice that God is doing the far greater thing. The evil and the cruelty of men against Jesus is the avenue by which God is bringing salvation to the world. This is exactly how God drew it up. And so on one hand, we may look at the cross, we can say, wait a minute, justice has not been done on the cross. An innocent man is suffering wrongly. And y'all, that's correct for us to, I mean, that's, that's plain as day. Justice is not being done in one sense. And yet in the far greater sense, it is. God's divine justice is being accomplished on the cross, and it's precisely because Jesus is innocent. Because Jesus is truly the perfect Son of God, the one true innocent sufferer. He's the only one that can bear up under the weight of God's wrath. That all the payment and penalty and punishment that our sins deserve actually have their proper place on His shoulders, in His body. He is the sacrifice that allows sinners like me and you not to perish, but to have everlasting life. That's how much God has loved us. And so is Jesus the victim of injustice? Yes. But that's a, that, is, that is a fraction of the reality. And it's really not the dominant thing we should see here. Because we recall something Jesus has already said. I lay down my life on my own initiative. No one takes it from me. And if I lay it down, I'll take it up again. Right? Jesus is holding all the cards here. We made that point last week. He is providentially in control even as he suffers unjustly. And, y'all, you know, we, we see that. There's a, now, this is not a, an aside here, um, what the soldiers are doing in the meantime. As Jesus lays bleeding on the cross, another injustice is taking place. And this one really ought to bother us, just at a basic human level. Verse 25, 23, rather, um, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, let us cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers... Did these things? Doesn't that bother you? Just the, just the inhumanity, not just to crucify Jesus naked, but to take his clothes as your prize. But this is, I mean, this is how the Roman soldiers would operate. This was part of their wages. It was the personal effects of the person who had been crucified. And so they take Jesus' clothes and they divide him up among themselves. But y'all, John is careful to show us that even this moment right here, this seemingly insignificant detail is happening under the providential power of God. This is happening according to the Scripture. And he quotes from King David in Psalm 22, centuries before, which now has its true fulfillment in the person of Christ. What the soldiers are doing is to fulfill the Scripture. They cast lots for my clothing and they divided them between them. When when John quotes that Psalm, he says, Therefore the soldiers did these things. as if the soldiers knew what they were doing. When obviously they didn't. These these Roman soldiers would have had no concept of Psalm 22, or that somehow what they were doing in that moment was fulfilling the Bible. No. And yet they're doing it. As one more example, John loves to do this, to point over and over and over again to God's writing of this story. Even the soldiers in the back alley throw in dice for the tunic was according to the will and the purpose and the intention of God. Everything's happening just as God has scripted it out. God's justice is being fulfilled. Now, the second big idea I mentioned at the first is God's mercy. We've got God's justice, but also mercy in the face of cruelty. Y'all, before we finish out this section of John, I want to draw our attention to something that uh, the other Gospels tell us about the crucifixion, specifically the Gospel of Luke. Y'all, one of the great things about the Bible, in in the case of the the ministry of Jesus Christ, we've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all have one harmonious and unified message, but they give us little details at times that the others don't. And so something John doesn't tell us, but that Luke does, he speaks to the mercy of Jesus that pours out of him, even as he is being nailed to this cross. This is in Luke chapter 23. We'll put it on the screen. Verse 33. It says, when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Jesus prays forgiveness for the very men who are nailing his hands and feet to the cross. As he's being mocked and tortured and crucified, he's asking the Father to have mercy on these men. That is unreal. And that's not all. We see just a few verses down. If you're in Luke chapter 23, again, we'll put it on the screen, two men being crucified, one on either side of Jesus. One of them is a thief who admits his own guilt. He acknowledges that he deserves to be there, he's getting what he deserves, and yet he looks next to him at this this pure and, and glorious human being. And whatever it was in this man's heart that propelled him in that moment, he turns in trust to Jesus. Jesus was no man, no ordinary man. Luke 23, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. There may not be a a better picture in all the Bible of the free grace of God than this right here. From one dying man to another, remember me, O Lord, which is to say, have mercy on me. Please be gracious to me. And Jesus looks next to him at this undeserving sinner and he says, before the sun sets today, You'll be with me in paradise. You will enjoy all the divine grace that covers your sin. You will know the joy and the life that goes beyond all imagination. Simply because this man in his dying breath turned his eyes to Jesus and trusted him. Y'all, the kind of mercy we've just read about, the thief on the cross... The, the, the soldiers who, are, who Jesus is asking for their forgiveness, this kind of mercy really disarms us. I know we're familiar with these stories, but this man, th- th- really, it really stuns us if we're reading it and really taking in what's happening. And y'all, frankly, for some of us, it may bother us, this kind of mercy, that Jesus would pray for his torturers, for those spitting in his face. Why didn't he spit back? For those condemning him, why didn't he stand up for himself and tell the truth about them? He knew their hearts. He could have owned them on the spot. He could have revealed to all who were present every single sin in these men's hearts. He could have put them in their place. He could have called down angels to bring him off the cross. And yet, Jesus forgives, Jesus grants mercy. This this thief next to him, he's got no good credit to his name. There's nothing that he can point to in his own life that would make him worthy of God's acceptance. But y'all, this is how the mercy of God works. And we can point to these men who are nailing Jesus' hands down. We can point to the thief on the cross, and we can esteem ourselves and say, man, (laughs) I mean, I've done some things, but I've never done that. I've never gone that far. I've never been that bad. But y'all, the way that mercy works from the heart of God puts us all at the very same level ground. We're all there. We're all equal in that regard. The truth about God's mercy is the more undeserving we are, the more glorious His mercy appears. The more of a sense of my own reality I've got, the more more real of a picture of myself I can see how undeserving I really am, the more gracious God appears to me. Jesus is not a small Savior to clean up our small issues. He's a great Savior for great sinners. That's why when the Bible says, sin abounds, and yet grace abounds all the more. All of us come to Jesus the same way that man next to him on the cross did. And we receive the same mercy. Without any regard for our record, what we deserve, Jesus Christ, is gracious. Now, y'all, here in John 19, we get the third example of the mercy of Jesus. I just gave us two from Luke. Jesus, y'all, he's very near death, which means he is is gasping for air at this point. He's, He's about to bleed out. And yet we see this in John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus, in his very darkest hour, at his weakest point, sees to it that his mom is taken care of. Y'all, almost certainly by this time, Joseph, the husband of Mary, has died. Jesus had brothers, yes, but his brothers apparently weren't here. Uh, At this point, they hadn't come to faith in Jesus. They didn't see him as Messiah, and they wouldn't until after his resurrection. And so here at the foot of the cross, we've got these four women including the mother of Mary. And we've got the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, standing next to her, and Jesus says to him, you treat her as your own mom. Uh, D.A. Carson comments on this and the mercy of this moment. Y'all, this, this obviously this is Jesus' darkest hour we're witnessing, but it was also Mary's. I mean, y'all, we can't even take in how horrible this could have been for Mary. And it was John's darkest moment, of course, too. And Jesus looks down on them both at a an, at an slightly elevated position, perhaps. He looks down upon Mary and John, and with great love and with great care and with concern, he makes provision for them, especially for his precious mother. Y'all, it's just one more expression of love from a life defined by love. Even as Jesus is preparing to give up his spirit He's only thinking about everybody else. Now, I, I mentioned uh, at the start of this, something about our human nature and it's okay for us to admit it. I can certainly admit it. I don't like it, but it's true. I'm not at my best when I've been wronged or even the perception of wrong. Even if I think you're against me, I'll start to tell myself a story and I'll start to cycle through all my self-justifying reasons why I'm better than you think I am. and everything. Like, I'm just, that's, that's what I am. Okay, and I, and I've, my, my suspicion is, some perhaps are better than others, but none of us are at our best when we've been slighted and hurt. We're, we're, just, we're just not very charitable when we're being mistreated. We're not very generous when we feel like we've been stolen from. Uh, we're not very forgiving when the person who's hurt us has no remorse. They're not sorry. They've gotten away with it. Or they died, and we can't, you know, we... like. And so I just, if, if I... I'm now able to hold on to my resentment. Well, that's what I'm going to do. They're not sorry, so I'm not sorry. Um, that's just that's that's human nature, right? But y'all, at the cross, with the weight of the whole world upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, we actually see him at his best, at his very best, bearing the penalty of a world of sin, suffering the violence and the insults and the abuse of those who hated him. Jesus is bleeding and dying as his enemies rejoice. They're celebrating his pain and his suffering. And yet through it all, we, just, we, we get to witness here what pours most naturally and abundantly out of his heart. It's mercy. It's love. It's the forgiveness of sins. He was doing it all the way to the end. See y'all, we can say this with, with absolute confidence and, the, and, and this right here is the source of all our hope and all our joy. That at the cross, at this, at this most defining moment in all of history, at the cross, Satan and men did their worst. But to no avail. To no avail. Because at the cross, God was at his best. God was demonstrating to the world His righteousness, both justice for sin and mercy for sinners, for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, so that we may know for certain that God freely gives us all things, all grace, all promise, all hope forevermore if we simply look to his Son in trust. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to see this morning we are far more like the thief on the cross next to Jesus than we'd care to admit. Perhaps we've done nothing worthy of capital punishment. But Lord, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And you are the true judge, Lord, no matter what we've done or haven't done in in the context of our little democracy that, that we're a part of. Father, you are the great judge who knows our hearts. You've got the book on us, Lord. And Father, apart from from your mercy and your kindness and love and grace, Lord, we have no hope at all. We are are condemned to die. And I pray, Father, that you would give us a, a, a real sense of this truth and the despair that comes with it. We need to know this, Lord, that on our own, even at my very best, I fall short. I am not righteous. No one is. And Father, I pray that even as we stare into that darkness, Lord, the darkness in each of our hearts, that there's a rejoicing that comes this morning in light of what we've just read that Lord, you, you do not accept us on the basis of our deeds, but according to Your great mercy, according to Your Son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in His body on the cross. And so, Father, this morning, we, we're, we're looking at a very um, dark, and difficult scripture. It's hard for us to feel any joy in seeing what they've done to our Savior, Lord. What the world did to your Son. And yet, Father, will you help us to see that that um, <laughs> my sin held him there? We'll sing that in a moment. Jesus died, Lord for me, for us. And so, Lord, even in this great darkness, even the world at its worst, Lord, you're at your best, and we can rejoice. Because right here at the cross, Lord, you did everything to bring salvation to sinners. You achieved all righteousness. You dealt with sin. And now, Lord, you offered justifying grace. Father, I, I pray for us this morning, whether we're here in this room, maybe even watching online. Father, right where we sit, would you turn our eyes and our hearts to Jesus Christ that we might see Him in all His mercy as our Savior. Lord, even if, we're, if, if in these, these next moments we breathed our last breath, just like this man on the cross. Or we can breathe a a final breath of faith, having looked to the Savior and asking for him to remember us, to be gracious to us. Lord, it is never too late so long as you grant us that breath. Or would would you show us that in all of our sin and unworthiness, your grace has abounded. And Lord, will we receive Jesus Christ And trust him to save us and make us your own. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for your son on the cross, our savior. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.